short-term rentals really do appeal to kind of a wide variety of situations and individuals, and especially during the pandemic where we learned so much that we can work from home or school from home, you know, it's even, they've become even more appealing. Welcome to the Proven Principles Podcast, the show that deconstructs the inner workings of the hospitality industry, breaking down the tools, tips, and tricks that the world's best-run hotels use every day. Here's your host, Adam Knight. My guest today is Pam Knudsen. She's the Senior Director of Compliance Services at Avalara, a transactional tax compliance company that operates across multiple industries, including lodging. I want to let you know up front that this isn't an episode about tax compliance, but rather a discussion to understand the impact that short-term rentals have on a community. We so often read headlines and see news stories about the negative impacts that vacation rentals have on housing prices, but rarely do we hear about the broader impact they have on the local economy. A recent HBR study outlined exactly that, and that's the impetus for this episode. Now tie in the regulation landscape, how it can benefit guests, owners, and locals, then you've got a more complete picture. Pam brings incredible knowledge and insight to this conversation, and I hope this episode illuminates a few points to consider if you want to jump into owning your own Airbnb. So let's get to it. This is episode 91 of the Proven Principles podcast, Pam Knudsen on Does the Short-Term Rental Industry Affect Affordable Housing? Enjoy. Pam, thank you so much for being on the show. It's great to have you. Great. Thank you for having me. So happy to be here. Why don't you tell us a bit about Avalara and what you do for them? And first of all, am I pronouncing it right? Avalara. Avalara. Okay, perfect. So Avalara, tell, <laughs> yeah. us, tell us what does Avalara do uh, and what do you do for them? Yep. So Avalara deals with transactional tax on all different tax types from sales and use tax to lodging tax, telecommunications, beverage, alcohol, um, anything that is transactionally based. Avalara deals with that. Everything from the calculation to the compliance side of things where we're filing returns, um, doing registrations on behalf of customers. So that's kind of what we do across the board. I am a senior director of compliance services. So I am responsible for a number of the compliance related teams that are filing returns. It could be, um, and again, across multiple tax types and lodging being one of those. Mm -hmm. And we're talking today specifically about regulation in the short-term rental field. Um, that's how we, we, uh, we got to talking about some, a really interesting HBR study uh, that you turned me on to. I didn't even know that this was out there about how short-term rentals affect affordable housing in, or I'm sorry, how short-term rental regulations affect affordable housing in the markets that decide to regulate short-term rentals. And so I, is, is this, before we dive too deep into this, is this an area that, um, that Avalara uh, works in and gives some some guidance to, to customers or clients on and in the regulation space, or is you kind of primarily in the the tax and other compliance world of hospitality? So we're we're pretty much in the tax and compliance, but part of that is getting people um, their necessary licenses and permits to actually operate a short term rental. So we understand kind of what the requirements are around that, what they need to do, how they need to. Um, meet the requirements of that jurisdiction to be able to get a permit to have a short-term rental. Mm. And so you've got to stay up to date on all the the crazy regulations that are sort of, and cr I mean, crazy in the sense where it's always changing. <laughs> There's always yes. something new coming down. <laughs> um, how do you, and you're doing that nationally, right? Right. Yes. All yeah. across the U.S. So, uh, 
all across the U.S. I really want to dive into this this piece with you about how regulations or how short-term rentals affect affordable housing, the title of the show. Because as you get deeper into this industry, that that seems to be the talking point that a lot of us hear is that as if if short-term rental regulations are lacking in a particular jurisdiction, it's kind of like the Wild West, that that affects affordable housing for locals. And there's all sorts of negative impacts on the, on the local economy. But this, this HBR study looked at it, or it kind of turned that on its head, didn't it? It, it looked yeah. at it a different way. And it said, you know, on one se- in one sense, yes, there is evidence that an unregulated short-term rental market does have negative effects on affordable housing in a particular city or neighborhood, but that's not the full picture. So right. can you dive into a little bit what we're talking about here and, and what we really should be looking at if you want to be holistic in expressing the opinion <laughs> that regulations <laughs> affect or don't affect a market? It's a very convoluted, long question, so I'll turn it over to you. Yeah, no, no worries. <laughs> so yeah, short-term rentals and the regulations that go along with this um, really ha- do have an impact on a community from a couple of different reasons. Um, and, and a good regulation process really makes sure that the short-term rental property owners remain you know, good and valuable members and neighbors in the community. And, and from a short-term or from an affordable housing standpoint, there's a couple of factors to be considered. Um, the HBR study that your references shows that that jurisdictions that have, you know, good and reasonable kind of regulations really do um, actually provide a boon to the community. They help increase housing development. They help increase, um, you know, the tax base, all of those things that actually really do benefit the long-term residents as well. Um, And then the other piece that you've got to really think through is, you know, what percentage of those short-term rentals would be something that is available at, or you know accessible for that person who's looking for that affordable housing. You know, if you go to some of the more tourist areas, you may be looking at at you know units or houses that are really high-end expensive houses that are going to be even if they were a long-term rental would be out of reach of your average grocery clerk or lift line operator, those types of things. So there's a, a really good balance here to be looked at to say the economic boon from the tourists coming in that supports these local businesses and restaurants and shops and those types of things, you know, that supports those people that need to live and work there, um, you know, is also a benefit that, you know, if you take all of that away, now is that person out of a job because there's no longer the demand for that service. So it's a really fine balancing act that the most well thought out things, cities are looking at it to say, how do we deal with this in a way that is sustainable on both sides? Um, And in some cases, it's been, let's put a fee in place or some taxing or whatever that then is specifically earmarked to help with affordable housing projects, issues, those types of things so that they can balance that need out. When we're talking about regulation, what what are we talking about here? I think we probably should have started with that. What is the what is the most common type of short-term rental regulation that you see in a given city? 
Um, it, it's so wide and varied. I'd say, you know, kind of the underlying thing is virtually every jurisdiction or community has a, a regulation that says, look, you have to get a permit to do this. You can't just go do this on your own, not let us know. Like you have to get a permit and along with that permit comes obligations that are related to, um, you know, the the lodging tax, you know, that there's lodging tax on these things that you have to collect that, you have to pay for that. And most of those permits have a lot of other regulations that say, you know, there's going to be a limit to the number of cars you can have parked there. There's going to be a limit to the number of people you can have in the house, you know, all of these types of pieces. And then some have gone further and said, before you can get your permit, for example, you have to have a home inspection uh, to make sure your home is safe and you know, livable and all of those types of things, or you might have to get a fire inspection to make sure you've got the appropriate carbon monoxide and fire alarms and those types of things. So every jurisdiction has varied it a little bit as far as some of the other pieces. Uh, noise monitoring is another one that we're seeing a lot happening where they're like, you mm. have to have some kind of a noise monitoring system that allows you to make sure that your guests are not being obnoxious to the neighborhood. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. Which is all about being a good steward, I suppose. If yes. you have a short-term rental in a neighborhood, that that's incumbent on you as an owner. Um, and then to take it a step further, some cities only allow you to have so many properties as a short-term rental. In some cases, it can only be your primary residence as a short-term Correct. rental. So I suppose it just gets more stringent and more stringent up to the point where there's some that just don't allow them at all. And it has, there's been some communities that have talked about that, um, some that have done that, some that are trying to severely limit the number of them. Um, you know, San Diego is a good example of a community that just passed a pretty strict limit on the number of short-term rentals that they're going to allow. So, you know, it, it's all the way across the board. Some have looked at it in terms of density, saying there can only be X number of short-term rentals within, you know, this one mile radius, you you know, the population density of short-term rentals has to be X percentage of the total population. So it mm -hmm. it is all very, you know, it varies across the country and it really kind of varies on the type of community sometimes um, and, you know, what it is that they are, their primary focus is, uh, you know, tourist-based communities tend to have a higher density, obviously, because they want the tourists. Yeah, right. And that, I guess, if you had to look at why I'm going to ask this question a different way. If there are such clear economic, larger scale economic benefits to having a robust short-term rental economy in a particular city, what do you think drives the desire to make it so difficult as a, as a real estate investor, for example, or somebody who just, you know, has a little bit of extra money and they want to have a second home and mm -hmm. the way that they can finance having that second vacation home is by doing short-term rentals, Air, Airbnb it when you're not there. So you're not, I mean, you're kind of a real estate investor, but not maybe in the classic sense, but these regulations can hurt people that maybe want to do that. Yep. What do you think drives the, the stringency of those regulations? Why are they so disjointed and disconnected across the country? It seems to me like it would be a lot easier to just, to, to maybe at the state level rather than at the city or county level, say, if you're going to have it in our state, this is how it's run, done. That's it. Rather yeah. than this just completely fractured and disjointed way of doing things. What, what's behind all of that? 
Well, I think part of it is the whole concept that cities, you know, want to kind of own their own fate. You know, they want to be in control of what happens within their community and the people that live there want their cities to have a say about it. That's one of the reasons they live there is because they like the philosophy or whatever of their local, you know, local community, which may be different than, you know, 100 miles away in a different city. Um, so I think that that's, that's part of what makes it so that it's very fractured. States are a little bit hesitant to say, hey, we're putting this blanket out there across the board for everyone. We're not taking into account that you're a little bit of a different type of community than, you know, you know, what Miami's different than Orlando, for example, or something like that. Sure. They're just not taking sure. necessarily that into account. They don't, they don't want to make that blanket statement. So I think that that's part of it. Um, I think also part of what happens is really, you know, how the local community understands and looks at short-term rentals and the economic uh, impact that they have. A lot of times people don't quite understand that. They just, they don't see it. They see that their house, the house next door is a short-term rental, but they don't necessarily understand the broader scope of what that impact is on their community and how it benefits them. And I think, you know, that's a piece that communities can do a better job at helping to draw that picture and help people connect mm -hmm. the dots with the fact that these short-term rentals bring in this revenue, support the local businesses, which actually keeps some of the long-term residences costs down because the services that the city provides, like road maintenance or police force or whatever, part of the funding for that comes from this economic, this tourist business that comes into play. And so helping people mm -hmm. to understand how all those pieces connect, I think, is a critical factor that, that communities need to start really looking at. Yeah, that's a really good point. It's a little bit of the not in my backyard coupled with uh, electoral pressure to retain your seat on city government and listen to your constituents. Yeah, I mean, I think there's a lot, you know, it, I think it's just really hard. The people that are typically the, the, you know, that are talking the most are the ones that live there because the, you know, some yeah. of the people that own short-term resident or short-term rentals, they're not in that community full-time. So for them to come to a city council meeting or a town hall, it might be challenging because they may live in a different city or a different state altogether. So, you know, the mm -hmm. loudest, um, you know, the, the biggest voice in the room may very well be the long-term residents and not, you know, not necessarily a balanced approach. Yeah, that, you know, that's a really good point. Um, as you look at regulations, the, the, the roadmap going forward, if you've got some visibility on what's going on around the country, I'm not going to ask you who's doing it better because that's very subjective, but right. rather, what are you seeing in terms of trends in regulation? Can you, can you say like, okay, so we've been doing this for X number of years. Short-term rentals are still new, but mm -hmm. you know, we've seen it change. And we've seen each jurisdiction change in this particular direction. Are, do you see things going a particular way? Are they getting more strict, staying about the same, less strict? Are you seeing regional differences? What's the, if you kind of zoom out to that 30,000 foot level? Yeah, I'm definitely seeing more regulations in the sense of, you know, it used to be, hey, you had a short-term rental permit. Here you go. 
go rent your house, do whatever you want kind of with it. But now in an effort to make sure that people remain good neighbors, definitely seeing more of those regulations, like I mentioned, that have to do with parking and occupancy and noise monitoring and trash. Um, and, you know, in some cases they're doing things like, you know, um, it must be X number of nights. You can't have a bunch of you know, people coming in for a single night. Um, and, you know, a lot of this is to offset kind of some of the perception around party houses or, you know, those types of things. So a lot more of those types of regulations and a lot more enforcement around the need to be permitted and follow the rules and regulations. So, and that's where the cities and the jurisdictions are really working with some of the bigger platforms like Airbnb and Verbo to say, look, in order to be listed on your platform, they have to have a permit number or we're going to start actually finding you, not them. Um, so, and it's a way for them to help get somebody else's assistance in enforcing the fact that you have to be permitted and meet these rules and regulations. Yeah. Yeah, that's interesting. The, the In fact, when that started to become a reality on Airbnb in particular, you saw a whole... I don't know the percentage off the top of my head, but it was a large percentage of listings just drop off immediately. As soon as there started to be some enforcement and checking to make sure, number one, that you had a license number on your profile, and number two, that the license number was a real one. You didn't just yeah. plug it in, just type in whatever. Yeah, it's it, it, so, I mean, in some sense, it it's creating more, uh, I suppose, security and, and confidence from the guest side that, what is listed on these platforms is in fact what they're going to get when they stay there. So that, yes. that creates a little bit more transparency and confidence there. And it creates hopefully a little bit more confidence in the locals who are living around some of these houses that maybe have been apprehensive in the past, but they see that there's there's a little bit more structure coming in and, and the requirements on the owner side is a little bit more onerous. They have to jump through a few more hoops to make sure that everybody's happy. But, it, you know, it's not, in most cases, it's not like overly burdensome. It's just, and it's a one-time thing. You know, you kind of make sure you've got it all in place to start with and it's good. Um, so, you know, you don't have to necessarily worry about it going on and on. Another piece that we're starting to see is, you know, everybody's always known you can go out to any of the platforms and you can see the rating of a given house, you know, that says, oh, this house is wonderful. It's four out of five stars or whatever. Um, it's also the reverse is starting to happen where um, hosts can rate the guests. And mm -hmm. so if somebody is looking to rent someplace, the host can actually look at the guests rating and say, oh, this person treated the house well. They were this, you know, they, they were a good guest. And so, yes, let's move forward. So it's, it's becoming both sides of that coin so that, you know, uh, the hosts actually do have. This is an investment for them. They don't want their house trashed. So they want to be able to help ensure that the people staying there are going to basically be good neighbors. And to be a good host, it's to, it's to, to support the community of hosts. If yes. you host people in your, in your home, it's, it's, it's a good practice for you to review that guest so that that yeah. information then sort of filters out and hopefully makes its way down the chain. I do remember in my hotel days, we used to say a lot of the time, man, I wish that there was a system to rate hotel guests because <laughs> uh, there seems to be a rating for everything related to hotels except for the other way. Right. Uh, and there's a lot of times where you might deal with somebody who's difficult and you might be able to you know, give the industry at large a heads up on 
how this person might be behaving or not paying their bill or whatever the situation is in your own property. So it, it, it's interesting that that hasn't made its way to hotels yet. Maybe it will one day, but yeah. who knows? Um, you know, so I, I suppose to kind of summarize that point that yes, to a certain degree, short-term rentals affect housing prices, mm-hmm. but it can affect them positively or negatively. Mm-hmm. So and there's a larger economic impact to having a robust short-term rental economy in your city that needs to be not understood at a at a nuts and bolts level, but at least conceptually understood that a lot more money comes in and supports a lot of other things in your community that you don't necessarily get when you just headline read. And you know, even even if you look longer term, you know, the more attractive your community is to tourists, you know, the better chances that, you know, they may someday want to actually move there. And, you know, so it's it's a draw to get people in long-term as well that might become long-term residents and, you know, help that housing market on that side too, because they want to become, mm-hmm. they want to move there. They they have loved their time there and they're like, okay, great. Now it's time to move. So, you know, it's yeah. there's a longer tail to this as well that people have to consider. That's a, that, yeah, I, I'm glad that you said that. And I, another area that I can't help but think about is, is if, if government, local, you know, city, state governments are taxing short-term rentals as accommodations like hotels. So the occupancy taxes, and if there's a, a tourist tax or convention city center tax, whatever, whatever your city is doing that they're levying on short-term rentals. Uh, are, do you foresee any changes in, in other compliance requirements in the short-term rental space? So what I mean by that are, and you mentioned it initially, like uh, house inspections requiring carbon monoxide detectors, obviously fire uh, smoke detectors, things like that. But on a commercial building, there's a whole other layer of, of building requirements and compliancy, um, requirements, compliance requirements. Do you see that coming into the short-term rental space or is it because these are by and large single family homes, it'd be really hard to carve those out to have their own building codes and building requirements if they want to do short-term rentals? Yeah, I think that's where the challenge has come in is looking at it and saying, how do we say this house on this block has to meet these six criteria, but the house next door does not simply because this is right now, this is a short-term rental. So what happens if the person in the house next door, you know, all of a sudden moves and wants, but keeps their house and wants to become a short-term rental? Do they now have to spend, you know, an inordinate amount of money to get their house up to some code that they've never had to have to live there? Um, And why do they have to do it now? And then on the flip side, you know, what happens if, yeah, okay, so you want to do a short-term rental and you have to do all these things, but now two months later, you become a long-term resident because you've just decided to move there. And now you've had to do all of these pieces. So, you know, that's kind of one of the pieces that is, is, has been discussed. And that's always kind of the debate is to say, how do you say that this house has to have it, but this house does not. Um, and then what happens is, you know, do you drive people what they classify as underground to say, okay, well, I'm going to do it, but I'm not going to get permitted. I'm not going to get licensed. I'm not going to do all of this. I'm going to do this kind of under the table because I don't want to go down that path. So you're losing 
the ability to to regulate and the stuff that really does need to be you know kind of managed and monitored and you're losing that revenue that that tax revenue um because you've made it so difficult that people are like i'm just you know i'm going to run underground and then enforcement becomes challenging because that requires a neighbor or somebody to call and then somebody to investigate you know and they're just a lot of them aren't really set up for that the police ought, you know the police department's not set up to go say Oh, hey, are you a registered short-term rental? You know, are you all of these things? Mm. They're they're designed to respond to, you know, noise complaints or, you know, those types yeah. of things. So it, it becomes a balancing act. Yeah, that right. That's the balancing act that you were talking about before. It's the combination of, you know, too much, too little, yeah, trying to cover as many bases that matter to this, yes. not necessarily, you know, creating a a regulatory nightmare like uh, it is in, you know, a, a, most other things related to real estate. Yeah. yeah. One, one person's opinion. So. <laughs> um, so, you know, as well, you know, more than one person, you get, you get what I'm saying. Uh, one last question here before we wrap. As, as a lot of these regulations continue to change and morph and evolve, as the industry matures, if you are an owner of a short-term rental currently, or you're thinking about getting into it, where are some of the typical places that people run afoul of these regulations and get themselves into trouble? Is are there is there like a top three? I mean, you, I'm going to caveat is obviously you have to follow all the regulations, but (laughs) is there like a top three things that you really got to make sure you got your eyes on and that you're doing right so that you don't get into trouble and either have your permit pulled or end up with heavy fines or, you know, potentially something worse? Yep. I think, you know, the, the couple of things is one, um, making sure that you get everything in place before you start renting. Um, You know, sometimes people are like, oh, I want to do this short-term rental. And they start actually trying to do that before they start the process of saying, I need to get the permit. I need to get this. I need to, you know, I need to do all of these things. So making sure that you know what's required, get that in place before you start renting. Um, I think that's one piece that, that people just don't think about because they don't necessarily think of it as a business. They think of it as just, oh, hey, I'm going to rent my house out when I'm not there. Um, And they don't necessarily consider it from a broader standpoint. And then making sure after that fact that you're following the requirements that you're required to do on a regular basis. And that's, you know, from the collecting of lodging tax to the remitting to the jurisdiction to, you know, whatever, um, you know, responding to, responding to any kind of complaints or any, you know, comments that come up about what's happening in your short-term rental. I mean, just really kind of monitoring what's happening with your unit over time instead of thinking, okay, God, done it, threw it up on Verbo or Airbnb and I'm done. I don't have to do anything else. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you are still the owner. It is, <laughs> right. it is still making sure that you're taking responsibility for making sure you know what's happening within your own unit. Yeah. And I would put that, maybe just do a little sub point to that is that if you have hired a third party property manager to run your short-term rental for you, yep. you, it, it's, you should still be making sure that they're doing the things that need to get done. It doesn't sort of absolve you of, of this unawareness of what the regulations are in your city because you have a manager taking care of it. It's right. still a smart move to be aware of what's going on and just 
you know, do, do a little check and balance. Yeah, just like you would for anything else. If you were to hire, you know, if you hire somebody to work on your car, you make sure that they know what they're doing and that they're doing it the correct way. You don't just say, oh, hey, great. You know, here's, you know, right. somebody down the street that says they know how to work on cars. I'm going to hand it to them and hope for the best. Um, it's... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, so. exactly. Yeah, that's, that's, um, yeah, always, always important to do the due diligence. Um, I think this is an interesting conversation. Uh, one that is definitely worth keeping an eye on because you know, again, as this industry matures, the, every now and then you start seeing the, the headlines pop up of, of how these things affect local economies. And most of the time there's a negative spin on that story. Yep. Uh, it's just worth I, I, I do think that it's worth just doing a little bit more digging and, and looking at some of the studies like this HBR study, which I'm going to link to in the show notes, just to read up a little bit more on the larger economic impact of, of the short-term rental industry in your particular city, just like hotels and tourism at large are almost always a good thing to have in your yes. area. You know, this industry contributes to the travel and tourism industry at large in your city. And I think it's, it's absolutely worth, um, having a, a, a robust, I don't really know what I'm saying here, but like, look into it, make your own assessments, but generally it's pretty good. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, and make sure again, to your point, a lot of what comes up and what is publicized is the negative side of things, but you know, like if somebody publicizes or makes a comment about a party house that was a short-term rental, okay, that's one in how many within the community kind of thing. And how many times do you hear about this? Is it, you know, is that one just because that's what made the news, um, you know, more than anything else. And so it's, it's really making sure that you're taking that balanced approach um, and understand what that, that bigger picture is. And, you know, short-term rentals really do appeal to, um, you know, kind of a wide variety of, of situations and individuals, and especially during the pandemic where we learned so much that we can work from home or school from home, you know, it's even, they've become even more appealing from that very perspective is I can go there, I can stay, you know, still have the kitchen, still have all of that. So I can kind of minimize, you know, some of those things, but, and I can work, but then I can go out and enjoy the community at night or on the weekends and I'm not having to take time off of work to do so. Um, so I can actually spend more time enjoying these communities than I've been able to do in the past. That's very well said. Uh, Pam, if anybody wants to learn more about you or what you're up to, where should they go? Go to avalera.com. That's the best place to go. Sounds good. I'll link to it in the show notes. Uh, Pam, I appreciate you coming on the show today and giving a little bit of insight on this. Um, it was very, uh, it's very interesting. Well, thank you very much for having me. It's been a pleasure and I look forward to talking to you again sometime. This was my episode with Pam Knudsen. You can learn more about her and Avalara at avalara.com. Thank you so much for listening to the show this week. If you're not a subscriber to the podcast, please do subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. For past episodes or to get in touch with us, just go to theprovenprinciplespodcast.com. And if you want to follow us on Instagram, we're at The Proven Principles Podcast, or you can find us on LinkedIn. I'm Adam Knight, and you've been listening to The Proven Principles Podcast. Until next time.